And Father, we pray now that as we open your holy word, that we would treat it with the reverence it deserves. The very revelation and word that comes from the true and living God. Lord, we pray that it would minister to each person wherever they're at, whether they are saved or lost, whether they're young in the faith or whether they're old and mature in the faith, that your words would have that saving and sanctifying effect today. I pray that you'd help me just to be an instrument, Lord, through which you could speak. In Jesus' name, amen. The last words of a dying man are usually treated by us as being very important. If someone's on their deathbed and we know they're going to die soon and they try to speak, we bend our ear down close to their lips and we listen intently. We may even write those words down. Well, here we have the last words of the Apostle Paul. We have his last written words before he was executed. And as such, it would do us well to really pay very close attention to what he has to say. Paul has been a warrior for Christ for 32 years. Wherever there was a battle, Paul was in the thick of the fray. Wherever there was a battle with false teaching, or with his own flesh, or with the world, or with Satan, the Apostle Paul would be sure to be the the guy there in the front holding the sword, rushing into the midst of the enemies. But now Paul has come to the point where he's about to lay his sword down for the last time. If you've ever watched war movies, especially Civil War movies, especially the movie Gettysburg, (laughs) and, and you watch that last charge, Pickett's charge, that insane charge where they're going up that hill and being blown away. Well, there's one guy holding the flag as he's running up. And when that guy, the flag bearer, gets shot, it's the duty of the person next to him to run over, pick up that flag, and keep going towards the enemy. Paul's been running towards the enemy for 32 years, and his flag is the gospel. But Paul's been shot, and he's about to fall down dead. And in his dying breath, he says, Timothy, come over here. Pick up the gospel and run with it. Charge the enemy with the gospel, Timothy. Advance towards the enemy with the gospel. Conquer the enemy with the gospel. And so Paul is passing the torch to his young friend who has been ministering with him for over 15 years as a father and a son in the faith together. And he says, take up because I'm about to lay my life down. So that's where we're at today in our text. Folks, all of us are going to die. 100 out of 100 will die unless Jesus comes back first. We're going to face death. Paul was about to die. Paul says, the time of my departure has come. It's here. The only question is, will we die well? Will we die as Paul is about to die? Paul said, hey, I have fought the good fight. I've finished the course. I've kept the faith. In the future, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, is going to award to me on that day. Paul died well. And what I want to ask you is, are you living a life now so that when you come to die, you'll have no regrets, you'll be able to die well, and you can say the same thing that Paul said, I fought the good fight, I finished the course, I kept the faith. My 
goal this morning is to urge you and to stimulate you and to motivate you to live a life now so that you'll have no regrets later. That you can die well, like Paul died. That's really why Paul is writing verses 6 through 8 in 2 Timothy chapter 4. You know, 2 Timothy chapter 4 has got to be one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, especially verses 1 through 8. So let's go back and let's reread, starting in verse 1. Paul says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry for... For. What does the word for tell you? Here comes the reason why I've been telling you all this, Timothy. Here it comes. Because I'm about to die, and because I have lived a life without regrets, so that when I die, I know that the Lord is going to usher me into His heavenly kingdom and award to me the crown of righteousness. Timothy, I want you to follow my example. I want you to follow in my steps. I want you to live the same kind of life that I live so that when you come to die, you too will have assurance that you are entering into glory with a crown of righteousness that will be yours. That's the reason why Paul is telling him about his own life. It's to stir up Timothy to live the kind of life that will be worthy of reward on that day. Now, as we work our way through the text, I want you to notice that there is a present tense, past tense, and future tense to what Paul has to tell Timothy. First of all, Paul looks around at the present. Then he looks back at the past, and then he looks forward to the future. So let's take a look at his present circumstances. Paul is looking around. He says in verse 6, For I am, present tense, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. First of all, he says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. Now, this would have made sense to Timothy, because Timothy has a Jewish background. His mother was a Jewess. He understood that in the Old Testament, one of the different sacrifices that was offered was called a libation, or a drink offering. And when you had a lamb, or a ram, or a bull that you were to offer up as a burnt offering, completely consuming it in the fire, sometimes there would also be added a grain offering on top of that. And then to top the whole thing off, the very last thing you would do is take between one and two quarts of wine and you would pour it out over those hot coals that were sizzling and burning up that sacrifice. And as soon as the wine hit the coals, of course, that wine would instantly evaporate, but it would leave this sweet-smelling savor. And in the Old Testament, wine is a symbol for joy. And I think Timothy is getting at this. He's saying, I'm about to die. But I don't look at my life as something that is being wrenched away from me. Something that I can't help. 
It's not like Nero is taking my life away from me against my will. I joyfully am laying down my life like that drink offering. And I'm doing it as a a sacrifice of worship to Jesus Christ. My final act on this world, that of death, is going to be an act of worship. Just like that libation that was given to God as a sweet-smelling savor, a joyful sweet-smelling savor, I am laying my life down to God as an act of worship. Now this is the same man that wrote Romans 12.1, where he says, I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. He also wrote 1 Corinthians 11, where he says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So Paul had lived to the glory of God, and he was about to die to the glory of God. He was to die as an act of worship to Jesus Christ. He was about to be taken from his prison cell. Remember, Paul is in Rome in the Mamertine prison in a dungeon. And historians tell us that in the dungeons there, there was a hole in the roof and either a ladder or a rope would be let down. And that's how the prisoner was let down into this dungeon. And then that rope or that ladder was lifted up, so he had no way of getting out. There was nothing in this hole. There was no windows. There was no light. There was no toilet. There was no furniture. There was nothing. And so you were just put there to sort of rot. They would drop some food down once a day. That's where Paul is when he's writing these final words. So someone came. They put the ladder down or the rope. Paul is hoisted out. They take him in his chains. They lead him down the corridor of that prison. They take him to a place where he is to lie down upon a rack. He's fastened there. His head is fastened to a chopping block. A hooded executioner comes out with either an axe or a sword. And in one great fell swoop, he severs Paul's head from his body. His head falls into a a basket. The blood is gushing forth from the neck area into that basket where the head is dropped. And it's similar to the Old Testament sacrifice where the wine is poured out over that ram or that lamb that's being burned. It's, it's a similar kind of description. And as Paul looks at what's about to happen to him, his beheading, he thinks about this final act of worship that he's going to give to Jesus Christ. I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. But the second thing he says is that the time of my departure has come. The word departure means loosing. The time of my loosing has come. And that word in the Greek had some interesting ramifications. Sometimes the ancient authors would use it for loosing the ropes or the cables that had tied a ship to the harbor so that that ship could set sail out into the deep. Paul's saying, The time of my loosing from being anchored to this earth, the harbor of this world, has come. And it's time for me to set sail into the deep waters of death and to travel over to my heavenly harbor where I am going to put in the dock. But sometimes this word was also used for the loosing of the ropes of a tent, to strike camp, to strike your tent, to take down the ropes and gather that tent up so that you could travel on to your next destination. The time of my tent being loosened has come, he's saying. And that's interesting because in John 1.14, 
the Bible says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the literal Greek there is the word became flesh and pitched his tent among us. He tabernacled among us. Jesus' body was like a tent. But it's not just Jesus' body, it's also our bodies. Do you remember Peter in Second Peter? He says, I think it's just right that while I'm in this tent, I would stir you up by way of reminder. Peter says, my body's just a tent. Jesus' body was just a tent. And the Apostle Paul says in Second Corinthians chapter 5, and verse 1, he says, For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So Paul likened his body to a tent, and his glorified body, his resurrected body, was like a house that he was going to live in for all eternity. Now, you've all gone camping at one time or another, haven't you? You've all stayed in a tent. Tents are pretty fun. I mean, I can handle a tent for a couple of days, maybe even a week. But how many of you want to live in a tent the rest of your life? No, thank you. <laughs> no heating, no air conditioning, bugs, bees. It's just uh, dirt everywhere. Tents are fun when you go out to the woods, but they're, uh, they're good for temporary stays, not for permanent stays. These old bodies of ours, they're good for a little while. But thank God... God's going to give us something better. A permanent body. A glorified body. An eternal body. And so Paul says, the time of my loosing of my tent is about at hand. This old body's going to be torn down. My head's going to be severed from my body. I'm going to be beheaded for Jesus Christ. But I'm going to have a brand new home in heaven. An eternal glorified body that the Lord Jesus will give to me. But it's also used of an ox who's loosed from his yoke. After that ox has worked all day and he's been pulling the plow and he's tired at the end of the day, the farmer will take that yoke off of his neck and the ox is now free to go and to walk about and to eat and to rest. And you know, this lifetime is really a life of labor for the Christian, isn't it? We're like oxes yoked to the plow. But there's coming a day when we will be released from that strenuous earthly labor, I believe there will be labor in heaven, and I think we will be satisfied with that labor, but we'll be released from this labor down here, and we will rest from our labors. In fact, in Revelation fourteen thirteen, the Bible says, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow with them. We will rest from our labors. And finally, this word was also used of the prisoner being loosed from his chains. Paul had chains on his feet and on his hands at this very moment. He was in shackles and fetters. But he's saying there's coming a day when I'm going to be released from this dungeon and I'm going to find myself in a heavenly mansion. Glorious beyond all compare. My shackles will be gone. My chains will be gone. I'm going to be loosed. Now, I find it interesting, first of all, that Paul didn't say, the time of my um, ceasing to exist has come. He says, the time of my departure. The time of my departure. Now, when 
You depart, you don't cease to exist, right? You just get up and move from one place and you go to another. Well, that's how Paul viewed death. He wasn't going to go into the ground and rot and cease to exist. He was departing this life. He was going to a heavenly life. And I also find it interesting that he looked on all of this with such eyes of faith. Because he saw his departure as a good thing, not a bad thing. It was to be loosed from this world, being anchored to this harbor, this earthly harbor, and finding himself in a heavenly one. It was to be loosed from this earthly tent and find himself in a heavenly, eternal home. It was to be loosed from this work, this labor, and to find himself enjoying rest. And it was to be loosed as a prisoner is loosed and set free. So with the eyes of faith, he says, to die is gain. To die is gain. As one fellow says, to live is Christ and to die is more Christ. <laughs> it's, it's gained. To die is very much better. So that was Paul's perspective. He looks around and he says, I'm already being offered up as an act of worship to Jesus Christ and I know that my being loosed from this world has finally come. So he looks around. Secondly, he looks back. And what does he see? He, saws what, he sees what his life has, been, has consisted of. And it's consisted of three things. Number one, he's fought the good fight. He said, I have fought the good fight. Now, what is that good fight that he's talking about? Well, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12, Paul writes to Timothy and he says, Fight the good fight of what? Faith. I have fought the good fight. Well, what fight are you talking about, Paul? It's the fight of faith. He's talking about his Christian life. His Christian life was a battle from beginning to end. If you look at the Christian life as sort of a Sunday school stroll in the park, you've got the wrong perspective on the Christian life. It's a battle. It's a war. It's fight to the death against the devil, against your flesh, against the world's systems and values, against false teaching. Paul knew that. And he said, I fought it. I fought it tooth and nail. I fought it to the very end. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 26, I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I buffet my body and make it my slave, lest possibly after I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. I boxed. I fought. Paul looks around at the very end of his life. He hears the bell go off. He's still standing in the ring and he sees all of his opponents lying down, knocked out. Paul has won. He's conquered his spiritual enemies. And he, you, you get the sense from here, I've fought the good fight. That there's no regrets in his life. It's not like he wishes he could go back and do it over again. He was satisfied that he had done what God had called him to do. In fact, Jesus said in John 17, 4, I glorified you, Father, on the earth, having accomplished the work which you gave me to do. And Paul is saying much the same thing, isn't he? I accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Now Paul isn't saying, I accomplished the work that you gave Timothy to do, or that you gave Jesus to do, or Peter to do. No, it's the work that you gave me to do. I have fought the fight that you put into my life. I fought it. Secondly, he says, I finished the course. What course is he talking about? Well, some translations translate it this way. I have finished 
the race. This is a race course. It's a race course. And it's not a 100-yard dash. It's not a sprint. It's a long, long race. This race lasts your entire Christian life. It's like a marathon. And the question is, will we finish our race? We've all started one, haven't we? How many here say, yes, I have started the Christian life. I'm on a race. The question is, how are you going to finish it? It doesn't really matter how fast out of the blocks you go. What matters is, how are you doing when you cross that finish line and snap the tape at the end? Are you still running? Lots and lots of people make professions of faith in Jesus Christ. Very few of them finish well. Now, I'm talking about people who profess faith in Jesus Christ. Many people say, Lord, 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 I've done this and I've done that. How will they be when they, fought, when they die and they cross that finish line? Will they still be running? Some people get knocked out of the race through sin. Adultery. Sexual immorality. Fornication. They're knocked out of the race. They're disqualified. Some people are knocked out of the race through heresy. They believe false doctrine and false teaching. Aberrant theology. Weird stuff. Like Paul was talking here. So and so have said that the resurrection has already taken place and thus they upset the faith of some. Some of us get into false doctrine and get knocked out. Disqualified. Some people finish the race, but they finish it on their knees crawling. Barely making it over the finish line. I want you to finish well. I want you to be running when you get to that place. I want you to say with Paul, I've fought the good fight, I've finished the course. And every course that God has for His people is different. Like my course is going to be different from your course. We all have an individual course set out for us. In other words, there are good works that God has prepared for each one of us. And they differ from person to person, depending upon our call, our life situation, the gifts that He's given to us. He has a different route, a different course for everyone. In Hebrews chapter 12, the author says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. In 1 Corinthians 9.24, Paul says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. It's not good enough to come in last place. But your goal entering a race is not just to finish last. Your goal should be to win the gold medal. And that's what he's saying here. And everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath. But we an imperishable. If someone can give ten months of their life to training for this Olympic game, <laughs> hours upon hours of toil and discipline and exertion, just to re win this little wreath that's going to perish, shouldn't we give everything we have to our Christian life, knowing that we have an imperishable reward coming to us that will never fade away? That's his argument. And then Paul could also say in Acts chapter 20, I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself in order that I may finish my course 
and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. That was Paul's passion. Can you hear it in his words? His passion was to finish the course. Is it your passion to finish the course God has laid out before you? We're in a fight. We're also in a race. We are to fight with all of our might and we are to run the race with all of our might. Looking unto Jesus. He's like our personal trainer. And we're running that marathon and he's running up ahead of us. Come on, you can do it. Put one foot in front of the other. He's he's giving us water as we get parched and he's leading us towards that finish line. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Thirdly, he says, I've kept the faith. Not only was Paul in a fight, not only was he in a race, but he was also a steward. A steward is one who is a manager of someone else's possessions. And that which Paul was managing was the faith. In other words, the gospel. He was entrusted to keep it. Now the word keep there is the same word that we find in John 17 when Jesus is praying to his father and he's saying, Father, keep them from the evil one. What he means is protect them. Guard them. Paul is saying, I have protected, I have guarded the faith, the gospel that you have entrusted to me. In 1 Timothy 1.11, he says this, The glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. It was a deposit. When you go to the bank and you write out a check and you say, I'd like to make a deposit, they take that money and they put it in their account, don't they? God had made a deposit with Paul. Here it is, Paul. It's the glorious gospel. I'm entrusting that to you. I'm depositing that to you. You keep it safe. You guard it so that nobody takes it or cheapens it or compromises it or changes it into something false. And so one of Paul's jobs as a steward of the mysteries of God was to make sure that the gospel was not polluted or corrupted, that he transmitted it pure to the next generation. And that's why to the church of Galatia, he would write this scathing letter. He would say, What? Have you so soon deserted him who called you by his grace? What was happening there is that Judaizers, these Jews, had come into the church where these brand new Christians had come to faith in Christ, and they said, Well, it's great that you believe in Jesus. But that's not all. (laughs) Jesus isn't enough all by himself. You need to become Jews. If you want to really go to heaven, you have to be circumcised. You have to keep the Jewish feasts and festivals. You have to keep the law of Moses. And Paul came against that with a holy fury, didn't he? He he told them, if you do that, if you go back to being circumcised, you're turning away from Jesus Christ as your one and sole and only hope. So Paul struggled to keep the faith. He did that in the the church of Colossae. Philosophy had entered the church there. The traditions of men had come in. The asceticism had risen its ugly head where it was saying, if you just do this severe treatment to the body, 
You're somehow more spiritual than other people. And these things, these isms had come into the church of Colossae. And Paul writes his letter to reprove and rebuke the false teaching. And wherever Paul went, whatever churches he founded, others would come in behind him and bring heresy. And Paul had to sort it out and he had to keep the faith pure. You and I need to keep the faith pure. Let me ask you a question this morning. Do you know sound doctrine? Is your theology sound? Someone was just saying before the service today that uh, a cult member showed up on his door and he felt rusty. His sword was rusty. He, he didn't know where the verses were to prove the deity of Christ. And he kind of stumbled around, but he, he wasn't happy with how that went. He wasn't keen and up on it. And Do you know what you believe? And do you know why you believe it? And can you turn in your Bible and show somebody why you believe it? Do you have a solid, sound foundation? And are you doing everything you can to keep that faith pure, not only in your life, but in the lives of others? What about your children? Are you teaching them pure, sound doctrine and theology? And if they get into heresy, false doctrine, do you seek to gently correct them as Paul tells Timothy to do in 2 Timothy 2.24? Gently correcting those who are in opposition if perhaps God may grant them repentance? It's not just Paul's job, and it's not just the pastor's job to watch over other people within our sphere of influence. When people get into a false gospel, we need to lovingly come to them, open up God's word, and seek to persuade them of the true true gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul fought the good fight. Paul finished the course. Paul kept the faith. Now, We've seen him looking around at his present circumstances. We've seen him looking back at his past. Now in verse 8, he looks forward to the future. He says, In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who've loved his appearing. Now let's focus here on this crown of righteousness for a few minutes. There's two ways you can look at this crown of righteousness. You can say, well, this is a reward for faithful service that Paul is talking about. The Bible does teach that believers will be rewarded for their faithfulness. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul talks about the fact that Jesus Christ is the foundation and that he's building on that foundation, but there's coming a day in which every man's work is going to be tried whether he's built with wood, hay, or stubble, or gold, silver, and precious stones. Now, what's the big difference between wood, hay, and stubble, and gold, silver, and precious stones? The value, right? And when wood, I mean, excuse me, when fire comes to both of those substances, it's a big difference between the two groups, aren't there? Some burn up, some don't. So Paul is saying there's coming a day when all of our works are going to be tried with fire. And those whose works endure, they're not burned up, they endure into eternity, that person will receive a reward. So it is true that believers will be rewarded based on how they have built upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. Absolutely true. 
I don't think that's what Paul is talking about here. Let me explain to you why. He's talking about a crown of righteousness. Righteousness. And he says this crown is also going to be given to all who have loved Jesus' appearing. Now, how many Christians do you think love Jesus' appearing? 50% maybe? All of them do, don't they? <laughs> Every Christian in his heart of hearts. In fact, in 1 Peter chapter 1, he says, um, And having not seen him, we love him. And having not seen him now, we rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory as we wait for his second coming. So there is in the heart of every Christian this love to see Jesus face to face and an anxious looking forward to seeing their Savior. So this crown of righteousness is not just the property of the super spiritual or the super faithful. It's the property of every child of God. Now, there are two other crowns mentioned in the New Testament. There's the crown of life and the crown of glory. And as I've looked at these crowns, I really don't think he's talking about three separate crowns or three separate rewards. I think he's talking about the same thing under three different headings. Because the crown of life, uh, James 1.12 says, Blessed is the one who endures under trial, for once he's been approved, he'll receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to who? Those who love Him. How many Christians love Jesus? All of them. How many Christians are going to get the crown of life? All of them. In 1 Peter chapter 5, he's speaking to the shepherds, the elders, the overseers there, the pastors. And he mentions the crown of glory that they will receive when the chief shepherd appears. And as I looked at this, what I really think he's saying is that the eternal future for every genuine child of God can be described as righteousness or life or glory. Righteousness. Perfect righteousness. Permanent and perfect righteousness where we will never sin again. Every thought of our minds, every act of our will, Everything we do, say, think, and feel will be perfectly righteous. Won't that be, won't that be wonderful? Can you, I mean, I can't even imagine that because I'm, I'm, I'm not that way now. And I bet you can't either, right? It's just hard to imagine that, but I, I love the idea of never doing anything ever again that would ever displease my Lord. Perfect righteousness. But there's also going to be everlasting life. Another way of looking at this eternal future for the Christian. Everlasting life with Jesus. And a third way is glory. The very glory of God, the glory of His kingdom, the splendor of entering into His beauty and His majesty forever. So Paul is saying, this is what I'm looking forward to. I'm looking forward to righteousness. I'm looking forward to life. I'm looking forward to glory. Now as we come to a conclusion this morning, I just want to exhort you for a few minutes based on what we've seen here today. First thing I want you to notice as we begin to, to focus on application is this, this little phrase in verse 8, that day. In the future there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord the righteous judge will award to me on that day. And Paul uses that phrase three times in this letter. In 2 Timothy 1.12 he says, I know whom I have believed and I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until 
that day. Or chapter 1, verse 18. The Lord grant to him, Anesiphorus, to find mercy from the Lord on that day. Now what day is he talking about? He's talking about the final day. The last day. The day when we see Jesus face to face and come before him on judgment day. Paul is saying, the reason he finished well is because he always lived every day in light of that final day. The last day. That day. Judgment day. Paul lived with eternity stamped on his eyeballs. Oh, folks, if we could live every day in light of that day, we would, we would die well, wouldn't we? We would finish our course. We would fight the good fight. We would keep the faith. And that's how Paul did it. It was because of that day. Brothers and sisters, bridge folks here today, fight the good fight. You have a fight, don't you? The Bible says the devil, like a roaring lion, is prowling around seeking someone to devour. But resist him. Fight him. Don't give in to him. There is a devil to fight. You have the sin in your own life to fight. Your flesh, which sets its desire against the spirit. In fact, the Bible says that our fleshly lusts wage war against our souls. First Peter chapter 2. That's another aspect of this fight. Your lusts are waging war against your soul. It's not just the devil out there, but it's your lusts in here that are waging war against you. And so I exhort you this morning to fight. Don't give in and say, well, I, I just can't help it. It's just me. God understands. God knows that I'm weak in this area. No, folks. Fight it. Fight it. Fight it through prayer. Fight it through faith. Fight it through the word of the living God, which will give you ammunition. It'll be like your sword to hack away the, the onslaughts of Satan. It'll be like your sword to fight against the fleshly lust, which rear, rear their ugly heads in your life. Fight. Fight to the death. Do you remember in Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan's immortal little book, that Christian and faithful find themselves in Doubting Castle? And giant despair has locked them up and they can't get out. And have you read that? I'm glad you have. I hope some of you have read that book. If you've never read it, you've got to read it. And in fact, if you've read it once, read it again. Uh, it was said of Spurgeon that he read the book a hundred times. He probably had the thing memorized. It's a, it's a beautiful work. But anyway, he's there in Doubting Castle. He's, he's chained up. He can't get away. Giant despair is watching over every move he makes. And then finally, Christian remembers... Isn't there a key of promise hidden away in my heart? And he opens up his heart, takes out the key of promise, and uses it to unlock the chains that had bound him, and he and faithful are able to escape. Promise is a way that he was able to escape the devil. Giant despair who would want to keep him locked up and chained up. The promises of God. Believe them. Remember, this is a fight of faith. We need to believe the promises of God. Believe the promise that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You are not condemned. You are the righteousness of God in Him. Believe the promise that greater is He who is in you than he who is in the world. 
Believe the promise that God has given you all things richly to enjoy. Believe the promise that He is faithful who has called you. He also will bring it to pass. God is at work in your life. He will not let you go. He will bring you safely into His heavenly kingdom. Go to God's word. Fill your mind and your heart with His word and believe that word. Fight the fight through faith. Secondly, I want to exhort you, finish the course. What is the course God has given you? Think about that for a minute. What is the course? It depends on the gifts God has given to you, the ministry to which He has called you, the life that He's placed before you, the responsibilities and duties incumbent upon you. But He has given you a course and He wants you to run it. And He wants you to run it well. And He wants you to give this this race, this run, everything you have to run with all your might. It's not a skip through the park. It's not run for a little ways and then when you get tired, sit down and go to sleep. It's run! Run! Run the race! And run it to the very end. Be able to say when you are giving your dying breath to somebody else, I haven't done it perfectly. God knows I've made mistakes, but I have fought. And I have run. And I have kept. The third one, I want you to keep the faith. First of all, in your own life, keep it. Keep it. Don't ever let the faith go. No matter what. No matter if you go through the the most severe tragedies. Hold on to the faith. Keep it. We went through a severe tragedy nine years ago when our son died. And we had to hold on with everything we had to Jesus Christ. But He kept us. And folks, there are going to be difficult times in your life where you're going to have... Nothing else but Jesus. Nothing left to hold on to, but hold on to Him with everything you have. He will never fail you. He will never fail you. He will never leave you. He'll never forsake you. He will keep you. Hold on to Him and hold on to His gospel. And if you know others around you who are starting to falter and slip away from the faith, or pervert the faith, or corrupt the faith, gently and lovingly, Go to them and help them see the truth. Open up this book and show them what it says. Keep the faith. What was Paul's great motivation for all of this? Why could he say, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. My, the time of my departure has come. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the course. I've kept the faith. In the future there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness. I believe it was because he knew that Christ's appearing was coming. He was going to see his Lord and his Savior face to face. Jesus was going to appear either when he died, in Paul's case, or perhaps in our case, when Christ returns. And if Christ doesn't return before we die, we're going to see him too face to face. There is going to be an appearing, isn't there? Do you love his appearing? Do you look forward to his appearing? Do you want to bow down at the feet of your Savior? And like the woman, weep and wash his feet with your tears. Take off that crown that he's given you and cast it at his feet and say, Lord, I don't deserve that. But you do. Only reason I'm here is because of what you did on my behalf. Lord, I am a sinner saved by grace. I know my wretched heart. I know what I'm capable of. 
Lord, you love me and you gave yourself for me. If you love his appearing, it'll motivate you to fight, to run, and to keep. Let's pray. Oh God, would you please instill a holy zeal in the hearts of your people today to fight and to run and to keep your faith. In Jesus' name, amen.